This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and today we are talking about higher education, and specifically as the United States Supreme Court deliberates after hearing arguments about affirmative action and its use in admissions to colleges and universities. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota, and he joins us periodically to put a philosophical view and help us understand why we should care about stories like this. Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, happy to be here as always, Ashley, on a gray day. There's nothing better than to be on the radio. (laughs) Well, let's talk about affirmative action. A few things, uh, what it is versus what people think it is. So I will start with, okay, I put a check mark that says I'm white. Somebody else puts a check mark that says she's black. She gets in college instead of me. Is that how it works? (laughs) That is not how it works. In fact, most of the time when you put that check mark on the application process, it is entirely separate from the decision. Why? Because most universities keep statistics of who they admit for analysis after the fact. But those statistics are not relevant to uh, the decision-making process. So, you know, we do that stuff all the time. It goes to a separate office. It's disconnected. At the same time, there are a bunch of reasons why universities in particular might be interested in a person's race and a person's ethnicity and a person's veteran status and a person's sex or gender. And that is both to help create a more just and egalitarian society, but also to have a diverse student and, 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 and employee body because our job is to both make the country a better place and prepare our students to exist in a diverse workforce. And if you are a student who has never encountered someone who was of a different race or a different ethnicity or something like that, and you go to a place where it's completely full of folks who might be different than you in some way, you don't want to be a deer in a headlight. You don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to get fired. And so our job is to prepare people for the real world and what they are going to encounter in the future. Well, in the real world, uh, we are pretty diverse. Why do you even need affirmative action if you could make the argument, we came up through these same school systems, we're diverse as a population, shouldn't that be reflected in just how we go to college? Well, we didn't come up in the same school systems. First of all, just think about North Dakota alone and think about the fact that here in Grand Forks, my daughter has the choice of two different high schools, one of which is more urban and has a sort of more arts and and humanities bent, and one which is more suburban and has lots of its own fields, you know, football field and track field and has a different interest. So just by being in a city, right, a small city at that, she has two options. If she were in Minneapolis, she'd be able to choose a Chinese immersion school or a music immersion school. But if you are in central or western North Dakota, not only can you not choose your high school in your town, but you might only have one high school in a county and you might have to drive an hour away. And so that alone, the rural versus urban thing makes a huge difference. And how you succeed in those schools is going to give people information about how they're going to, how you're going to succeed 
at the university level. But also, it is true, whether people like it or not, that student experiences are different in the classroom. So I have, for example, in my introduction to ethics class right now, I have a class of 40 students, and there's one African-American student. He's a male. And I talk about race a lot. And I have to construct the class and the discussion so that I don't call attention to him, so I don't ask him to be representative of his own group. But he's sitting there surrounded by all those people who are thinking about whiteness and blackness. And, you know, and, and I have to be I'm really careful because he just he looks straight ahead. He doesn't make a noise. He doesn't move. So it would be ridiculous to say that he is having the same exact educational experience as anyone else because he is experiencing it as the topic of conversation, even when we're talking about white people as opposed to black people he's still the topic of conversation. Now, that doesn't even include things like schools that don't have access to computers, schools that face drug problems, schools that face teacher shortage problems, schools that um, only ac get uh, access to new teachers rather than senior teachers. And because the United States is what it is, a lot of that stuff tracks to race and to class. And colleges have to take that into account. You know, it's interesting as we are having this discussion about affirmative action, which could be also um, about gender or it could be about geography, a rural student getting preference over an urban student just because there are too many urban students there. Um, it can be applied to military service. Um, why do you think we always kind of go to the race issue when we think about affirmative action? We go to the race issue because race is the central fault light in our society. It is the original sin of the United States, to use Catholic language, and it's the thing that makes us the most uncomfortable and makes us the most angry. And so there is this sense amongst many Caucasians that African Americans are getting benefits that they don't have. And there's, there's a sense amongst many African Americans that they don't have the same opportunities and privileges that, that Caucasians have. And so the fact of the matter is, whether we like it or not, race is the central dividing line in our society. And then I would just, I just ask again, the North Dakota listeners to ask themselves, how many African-Americans do they go to school with? We live in a profoundly segregated society. Now, it's not the North Dakotans' fault, per se, that there are no African-Americans here, and it's not the African-Americans' fault that there are no African-Americans here. It's the history of migration. It's the history of politics. It's the history of slavery. It's the history of all, of all sorts of things. But it is a fact that North Dakota is predominantly white, and the largest minority group is Native Americans. And that means we're segregated. And because we're segregated, universities believe that we have to take that segregation into account when we start thinking about student achievement. So again, imagine you are the only of African American in a rural school system, and you get an A in all of your courses. Was it harder for you to get A's than a Caucasian student? It probably was. Why? Because you don't have 
the same community of support. You might not have the role models. You might not have uh, people who understand your history. It might not have been harder. Why? Because statistics don't tell us about particular cases. Statistics tell us about generalities. And what affirmative action is trying to do is not use the statistics, but use individual people's actual experiences to try to figure out what kind of things that has that have that have happened to them that speaks to their ability to achieve and their ability to handle university life. Jack, in your role as a professor, you have had many thousands of students at, at this point. What do you see as the differences? What happens when you are in a diverse classroom um, and what happens when you're not in a diverse classroom? So let me um, let me back up for just a second, because I think this is important. And philosophy is <laughs> as a discipline is particularly bad about race and gender. We are a very canonical di discipline. We're very traditional. And so when I teach, I have to teach Plato. I have to teach Aristotle. I have to teach John Locke. I have to jo teach John Stuart Mill. And while there are differences between all of these people, they are they go in that, you know, super silly named category, dead white men. Now, I can choose to not teach them, but then I'm not doing my job because I have to teach Plato. I have to teach Aristotle. So how do I do that? How do I create a diverse curriculum in my classroom? Well, what I do, and this is a shameless plug, what I do is I make them listen to Y Radio. I choose episodes of Y Radio about race with African-American guests, with women guests, with Asian guests, with veteran guests, with... Um, other things so that I can bring the diverse voices in to the classroom so that they can have the traditional coursework and they can have the contemporary diverse voices. That's a form of affirmative action right there. That's a form of me saying, I need diverse voices in my classroom. So I am intentionally going to find voices that represent this experience, that talk about this topic, that share this idea so that the students have access to both. And there's nothing insidious about what I'm doing. I'm not saying I'm going to choose the less qualified guest to be on my show. What I'm saying is if I'm going to have a conversation called What Does It Mean to Be African, which is, was a recent episode of Y Radio, I am going to have a Black African expert, specialist, brilliant person on the show so that that Africanness, that Blackness, that, that, that specialized perspective is there. Now, let's make that a larger context. If we want our students to learn we want them to be in groups with people who have different experiences them. We want the desks to be full of people who have been fr uh, from the cities or have been from other countries, who have been to war, who have been pregnant, who have had easy lives and hard lives. We want our students to be able to interact every day with people who can enlarge their perspective on lives both because it makes them more sophisticated, more cosmopolitan, more knowledgeable and wiser people. And also, again, because that's what they're going to encounter in the real world. I say to my students, and, and some of the listeners aren't going to like this, <laughs> but I say to my students, 
if you leave North Dakota and you go to your job wearing a fighting Sioux sweatshirt, they are going to think you are, and I use a curse word, but I'll say they're going to think you are a jerk. And the students are surprised. And I say, look, it's just the way it is. In a place outside of North Dakota, the Fighting Sioux logo is regarded as fundamentally racist and fundamentally problematic. Now, you may disagree, and that's fine. And it might even be wrong that is fundamentally racist and problematic. But it doesn't change the fact that if you want a job in Minnesota or you want a job in New York or you want a job in Florida, then, and you wear that sweatshirt, they're not going to trust you anymore. And our mm. students have to know that. And our students have to be made aware so that they can make the choice. And that choice may be, the heck with it, I'm going to take the risk, this sweatshirt is too important to me, I'm going to wear it anyway. That's the game you play, and, and we all abide by our principles, right? But it's my job to tell the students about the world as it is and to prepare them for the consequences of growing up, growing up in a homogeneous society and the things that they have to learn to work and live and interact in a diverse society. We're visiting today with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He is a philosopher at UND, and he joins us to get a philosophical view on some of the biggest news stories right now, the United States Supreme Court. The six conservative justices are signaling that they may be ready to overturn uh, decades of precedent here in uh, as they are deliberating on the affirmative action and use of affirmative action in the college admission process. Jack, if the justices do strike down affirmative action, where does that leave colleges in who and and where, where does that leave colleges when they're trying to decide whom to admit? So, okay. So, Again, let's take a step back and let's uh, talk about what the admissions process looks like, because recalling your first questions about the checkboxes, what a lot of people think happens is the universities have people check their boxes and they have a pile of, of, of black students and a pile of white students, you know, uh, binders full of women. Right. And um, and they and they choose from those those piles. And that's not how it works. How it works is a college admissions process involves looking at tests, looking at grades, looking at extracurricular, looking at uh, personal essays. And in the process of those things, there are different categories. And so let's say in the essay portion, one of the questions was, describe a hardship you had in your life. Now, when they think about hardship, they're going to look at hardship. And then within that hardship, they're going to look at the maturity you dealt with the hardship. Right? First of all, they're going to look at the quality of writing in the essay. Right. And then after the quality of writing, they're going to look at the uh, uh, of the, the content of the essay. What kind of hardship did you face? How do you communicate that hardship? How do you deal with that hardship? Within that hardship, one of the things that people will look at is if there is a racial component, if one of the hardships you faced was, let's say, being the only African-American in a rural white school or growing up in a very, very, very poor and possibly violent neighborhood, which, by the way, as I've talked about on the radio before, was me. Right. This I grew up in 
the crack distribution center of the East Coast in Spanish Harlem during the crack epidemic in the 1970s and 80s. I grew up under the 34th precinct, which had the highest murder rate in New York City. So it's not the case, and everyone knows that just because you're black doesn't mean you grew up in a, in a bad neighborhood. And just because you're white, it doesn't mean you didn't grow up in a bad neighborhood, right? So no one considers it that simply. What they do is they look at the essay and they look at the hardship and they look at the maturity and within that they see race. And so race becomes a component of a component of a component of a component of consideration. And some people do this by a point system and some people do this in other informal ways. And so what race ends up being is something like, and I'm making this number up, but I think it's fairly accurate, like 0.5% of the consideration. It doesn't work that, you know, the white students have to get A's and the black students have to get B's. That's not how it works. The application is taken as a whole and race is one component out of many. Now, we know this because the Supreme Court required this to be true. In the 1978 case, Regents of University of California versus Baki, there was a quota system. And the University of California said, we're going to reserve um, 16 out of 100 uh, places for minority students. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. That's unconstitutional. It's a violation of the Civil Rights uh, Act of 1964 because it's taking race as a primary consideration. And so schools stopped using quotas. It's blatantly unconstitutional. And so what schools then started to do was use this more subtle, nuanced way of balancing people's actual lives with their ethnic racial experience. Look, if someone says in an essay that they served two tours in Iraq and it taught them, right? And actually this is one of my students was a, a tank commander for three tours mm. uh, af after he was my student. Uh, he did three tours as a tank commander in Iraq and he decided he wanted to be a doctor after that. And he actually wrote me for a letter of recommendation and talked about how important the philosophy was in, in making this decision. And don't you think that that should be considered when he writes his application? Don't you think the fact that in the midst of being a tank commander for three tours, his his deepest wish is to help people around him and to protect, you know, people medically to, to intervene, that the fact that he did this during a hardship shouldn't be a consideration? And you can't do that if you're not going to consider race as well. So the first thing is that the process isn't, isn't what people think. The second thing is that part of what the process is designed to do is counter what's called legacy admissions. Legacy admissions are the amount of students who get into a college because their parents went to that college. So 25 to 35 percent, as much as a third of students at Ivy League schools get to go to that school simply because their parents went simply because their grandparents went. That's a straight up consideration, right? A third period, no other considerations. Now, why is that relevant? Well, first of all, if you are a third generation Harvard student, your grandparents or great grandparents went to Harvard before there were a lot of African-American students, before Jews were largely permitted to go to Harvard, before women were in Harvard. And so you are benefiting 
from that exclusion. And so part of what affirmative action is actually designed to do is to counter the massive influence of legacy admissions at schools. So many of my students are here and talk about how their parents went to UND and how their great parents and how they always wanted to go to UND and all that sort of stuff. And I and I respect that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to continue a family legacy. But if a third of the spots are reserved for people whose families are already there, that's a third fewer students who have a fair shake at getting into Harvard or Stanford or, and I don't know what the numbers are for UND, at UND. Mm -hmm. And so affirmative action is designed in part to counter the power of family history. How come quotas based on race or sex or a protected class are illegal or unconstitutional, but quotas based on legacy admissions aren't? <laughs> That's a good question. And I don't know that legacies are quotas per se. So first of all, the history of quotas are really interesting because up until the 1950s or so, what quotas were actually used was to keep people out, specifically Jews. Uh, Harvard, Stanford, all the Ivy League schools, they tapped, they capped the number of Jews that they would allow in. And but at the same time, and this is super interesting, the entire application process that I'm sort of, that I'm talking about, that I'm celebrating in, in some important ways, is actually the consequence of that. Because the schools weren't allowed to ask if they were Jewish. They weren't allowed to identify Jews by their religion. So what they had to do was they had to ask questions like, has your family changed their names? Mm. Did you describe a hardship that your family faced? Did your family grow up in a different country? All of these coded messages that were designed to identify the Jews to keep them out. So this leads to the philosophical issue at hand, which is the very things that we, uh, that we use to let people in can also be used to keep people out. And the danger of quotas is that they are the strongest tool to do that, the strongest tool to look at a person two-dimensionally and say, they're just Jewish, they're just black, they're just a woman, we want a black person, we want a woman, we want or don't want a Jew, right? That's what the quotas allow you to say because it makes a person into a two-dimensional statistic. What the, what the essay process does, what the application process does, what, what interviews do is allow people to be the whole person. So, so, so let me take a, a sort of silly example. Will Smith, he's in this movie called The Pursuit of Happiness, which I did not particularly like. But nevertheless, there's a great scene where he is being interviewed for a position in an internship in a high finance company. And the night before the interview, the police come to his house and arrest him for unpaid parking tickets. They put him in jail overnight and he's painting at the time. So he's just wearing a, a, a sleeveless T-shirt and, and painted covered jeans. And that's what he's wearing when he gets out of jail. And he has to go straight to the interview. And so he sits at the table and there are all of these white guys in suits and ties staring at him, you know, looking down on him and very uncomfortable because he's wearing, you know, a tank top and looking grungy and, and, and looking, you know, like the worst stereotype of an unprepared African-American coming for an interview. And the first question they ask is, 
how would you make this decision if someone came here not wearing a shirt for their interview? And of course, he's Will Smith. So he gets to say, well, I guess it depends what kind of pants they were wearing. And everyone hmm. laughs. But then he tells the story. And then he says, look, this is what happened. And it was parking tickets. And I'm a single father. And I want a good life for my son. And he's and he's very... <laughs> this is such a terrible word in this context. He's very articulate and he's very charismatic and he's very smart and he's very persuasive. And they give him the position because they can see past the two dimensionality of his T-shirt. And that's how affirmative action is supposed to work. Your skin, your ethnicity, your economic class, your sex, your veteran status, etc., your age that can't just be the tank top. It has to be part of the context. And so the reason why the Supreme Court turned quotas away and the reason why we have this new, much more subtle system of affirmative action is precisely to ask about the role of being who you are in the context. Because the fact of the matter is, is that if you are the only white kid in an entirely black urban school and you succeed, that's relevant information too. And you can only explain that by race. So it doesn't go one way. It's just that historically, the way the United States is, it tends in most circumstances to go the other way. But if we say that race cannot be a consideration at all, the kid isn't allowed to say, hey, I was a poor white kid growing up in Harlem and they called me whitey all the time and I was always afraid of getting beaten up in the bathroom, but I still managed straight A's. That's relevant information. That's Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota. He also hosts the show Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life, which airs one Sunday a month right here on Prairie Public. And today we are talking about affirmative action in light of the Supreme Court uh, deliberating on whether to keep or to reverse affirmative action policies that have been in place for the last few decades. Jack, you talked about a white person being able to use race as a qualifying example of how to get into uh, university. And a lot of people, when they talk about affirmative action, say things like, well, isn't this just reverse racism? So first of all, there's no such thing as reverse racism. There's just racism, right? Reverse racism is equality. So reverse racism would be a good thing. But I know that that's not, you know, what you're really asking. Um, what racism denotes is people in power taking advantage of their power on the basis of whatever bigotry they have. And the folks who don't have the power can't do that. So the folks who are clawing their way into the university because they're traditionally excluded and marginalized, they don't have the power to be racist in that way. They have the power to be racist. They can hate other people for, for their race or whatever, but, it, but institutionally, it doesn't really apply. It's more now, about power structure. It's more about the power structure. So let's let's take an example. Let's let's understand sort of the way affirmative action is supposed to work. Imagine you have three people running around a track. One person is just normal, a runner wearing their running outfit. 
the second person and the third person are both wearing 40-pound bags of concrete. And they start the race. Who's going to win? Well, obviously, the guy not carrying the concrete, right? So they stop the race and tell everyone to stand still. And they take away the concrete off of the other people. Now, what do they do? Do they just start the race where it is? No, that's not fair because the person who was running without the concrete isn't as tired. And so if they just stopped it where it was, the two other people would be at a disadvantage. What then do you do? Well, do you put them at the same starting line? Well, no, that wouldn't work either because the person is still has more energy than the other two people. So the theory is that if you move the other two people further ahead, the people who had the concrete, then it looks like it, it's an advantage, but it's actually equalizing the playing field. That's the theory behind affirmative action. The theory behind affirmative action is that there's so much inhibiting marginalized people. There's so much messing with someone who had a hard life that they are given a little bit extra to equalize the playing field. Now, with that said, there are two caveats. The first is... The Supreme Court was very clear that affirmative action is a temporary policy and that affirmative action is only justified while there is serious structural racism in the United States. So if you don't think there's racism in the United States, and I don't think that's a defensible position, but if you don't think there's racism in the United States, then maybe affirmative action's time has come and gone. But if you think there is racism, if you look at the world and you look at how it is, then there has to be some sort of remedy for the racism. So that's the first part. The first part is that it's temporary. The second is that what affirmative action was first and foremost, and really is to a large extent, was an advertising policy. So universities that would traditionally advertise in New York Times started advertising in Ebony Magazine, started advertising during uh, black television shows or Asian television shows. What affirmative action was first and foremost was a way of reaching out to marginalized populations that didn't otherwise feel that they had the opportunity. So if you went into a black school and said, Harvard wants you, you think they don't, but they do, that is affirmative action. And so this idea, right, and this is why the Supreme Court cases are precisely about affirmative action in the admissions process. Because if you think that Harvard shouldn't be allowed to or shouldn't put money into sending people to urban schools or black schools or Asian schools or whatever, you know, whatever it is we're concerned about, then that's a that's an even larger uh, discussion about what it means to exist in a purely race-blind society. But what admissions are is one tiny component of a larger acknowledgement that different people in this country have access to different opportunities, and the only way to make that equality of opportunity happen is to reach out and to recognize the reality of the surroundings and figure out how that disadvantage impacted their whole personhood and their whole experience. 
Let's take this outside of higher ed now. Does this also, if it was struck down in higher ed, does this open doors for it struck down in the workforce? Absolutely. Uh, everything always happens in higher ed first. Higher ed is a, is a cultural leader. It's a knowledge leader. It's where much, most of the research is done, right? That's, higher ed is incredibly important. And you can see uh, a connection between the stagnation of higher ed and the stagnation of state economies, which is something that the North Dakota legislature doesn't seem to understand. That The better the university system at North Dakota does, the more money there is in the university system, the better off North Dakota is going to do. And the reason why North Dakota struggles is precisely because the university system struggles. And there's lots of evidence to show that. And then this attitude is going to affect the workplace and, and how diverse workplaces should be. The question then becomes, okay, so I want to call our attention to something that you and I have both been guilty of doing, which is we've been saying things like, how do we counter the narrative that uh, affirmative action is helping people who are disadvantaged or affirmative action is giving people extra points. But the fact of the matter is, is that what most affirmative action does is counter the exclusion that happens at the institutional level. So what happens a lot of the time is you have a boss of a factory, a foreman who's doing the hiring and says, I don't want a woman and just immediately ignores all the female candidates. Affirmative action is supposed to stop that. You have all of the evidence shows that if you get study after study after study shows that if you have the same exact resume in every way, shape or form, but you change the name from a traditionally white name to a traditionally black name, that the number of job offers or interview offers plummets by a massive amount. What affirmative action is really about at its core is the way that, because of the history of the United States, people exclude ideal candidates because of their race, because of their sex, because someone's going to say, I don't want uh, a vet from the, from, from the war in my shop. He has PTSD, right? You're not allowed to do that. I don't want a 65-year-old in my uh, office because uh, they, you know, they're going to die in 10 years. Or the most traditional example, we're not going to hire women, young women because they're just going to end up getting married and pregnant and then we're going to waste all of our, our resources. What affirmative action is really ultimately about is not simply countering the disadvantage that people have experienced in their life, but also working hard to negate that guttural, instinctual, pernicious bias that affects the job hiring process. And we have not been super successful in this country in solving that problem and curing that ill. We don't because people still do that. I don't want to cast aspersions on anyone, but there's the, the windmill factory in town. What's the gender makeup of that windmill factory? I don't know. It might be great. It might not be great. But are women less qualified to work in a, in a windmill factory? Probably not. So that's what affirmative action is ultimately about. It's about the boss who only sees the gender, only sees the, the, the skin, only sees the veteran status and says they are not right for this shop. 
without looking at anything else. Hmm. What about outside of the workforce? Could, uh, for example, a bank use this information to determine who gets a loan? So this is super interesting and super complicated. So the banks, of course, are not allowed to do that. But what they are allowed to do, let's say you want a mortgage, is they're allowed to look at the address of where the house is to assess the risk and the interest rate of the mortgage. And so they will look at, you know, the house on on the other side of the tracks and say, all right, we're going to give you a loan, but it's a higher risk loan. So we're going to charge you this much or we're not going to give you a loan at all. But we all know that the other side of the tracks is poorer people or um, minorities or something like that. And there have been and there still are, but they're much harder to enforce laws throughout the country for centuries that limit who can live where and how they can live. So again, one of the issues that we're trying to address is the fact that even when we aren't necessarily talking about race per se, we're still talking about race. Maybe we're talking about address or neighborhood. Maybe we're talking about a kind of house. Maybe we're talking about first time homeowners instead of third uh, time homeowners. All of that correlates to race, to gender, to, to class, to ethnicity, and affirmative action has to address that too. So we, we have to distinguish between um, uh, Latin words here, so uh, de jure and de facto. De jure is Latin for by law, and de facto is Latin for in fact. By law, we are not a segregated society. By law, segregation is illegal. In fact, we're a profoundly segregated society. We're segregated by state. We're segregated by neighborhood. We're segregated by block. India, the country of India, has in their constitution clauses requiring by law the fundamental equality of women in all aspects. So de jure, constitutionally, India is a profoundly gender equal society, but in reality, it's significantly more unequal than ours is that 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 women are in much more. It's a much more hierarchical and women are much more disadvantaged in India than they are here. So one of the things that affirmative action is trying to recognize is that the thing that the law says is not necessarily correlated to the actual fact of the matter. I want to spend a few minutes here, Jack, in talking about reversing precedent and yeah. the Supreme. <laughs> the Supreme. Why are you laughing? <laughs> um. Well, ask your question. I don't. I don't. I don't. Well, that step that on is my question now. Okay. So, so the core, <laughs> the core concept of the American legal system, which is the, the common law system, the English system, is stare decisis, the stability of the law. And the stability of the law is required because if the laws change over time very frequently, then no one can predict anything. Right. So, I mean, let's let's just look at what happened with the student loan pro, uh, program. Right. There are all these students who expected to get ten thousand dollars back and Maybe they put some money in their credit cards. Maybe they bought something. Maybe they signed up to go back to school. And then all of a sudden, the court said, nope, 
we're going to put this on hold. You might not get those $10,000. All those students are not only, pardon the term, screwed, but now they're doubly screwed because now not only are they still in debt of that $10,000, they may be in debt of $20,000 because they spent it already. Imagine if you are an oil company and you want to drill in Anwar and the Bush administration comes and says, okay, you can drill in Anwar. But then the Obama administration comes and says, no, you can't drill in Anwar. And then the Trump administration says you can. And then the Biden administration says you can't. You can't run a business like that. You can't do that. So the stability of the law is unbelievably important so that people can live their lives. This leads to the idea of precedent, which is that a law or a decision of a, of a court case should not be overturned unless there is compelling reasons to do so. And there are standards as to what those compelling reasons are, including things that are just, we got it so profoundly wrong, it's humiliating. So for example, the Karamatsu case, which was the case that said it was constitutional to take Japanese Americans and put them in, in internment camps during World War II. That was overturned because the Supreme Court was like, oh my God, we messed up, we messed up horribly. The separate but equal case, right, that, um, that said that, uh, um, you know, segregation was okay as long as African Americans, uh, descendants of slaves and, and white people had equally good schools. And Brown versus Board of Education, which is generally regarded as the best decision in, in the history of the, of the United States Supreme Court, uh, it said, no, 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 we got that wrong. But, it, but all of those shook up society profoundly. What has happened since the conservative majority came into power uh, and the Trump appointees in particular, is they have been overturning precedent left and right, one after the other. And so the Supreme Court appears not to hold to precedent at all anymore. And the standard, I think it's Justice Alito, um, but I, I'm not 100 percent sure. The standard ultimately ends up being for them that we don't agree with the decision. And that's horrific from the standard of the rule of law. It's a nightmare. And it also means that everyone's legal education is completely obsolete. So part of what's going on here is that the Supreme Court has suddenly become such a massive political tool. It's always political. I'm what probably what gets called a legal realist. I understand that Supreme Court justices are in some sense politically political operatives, but it has become so blatant that now every single thing that people are counting on is off the table. And that's what's so scary about this. It's not just the affirmative action case. It's that no one can predict the outcome of any case and there's a very famous, I can't remember the guy who did it, a very famous brief that came out a few years ago that looked at all the statistics and looked at historically how often uh, the court ended up siding with conservative principles and how often uh, it was moderate and how often it was liberal and how off the charts the conservative decisions are now. Now, if you are a conservative, maybe you think that that's good, but are you willing to give up the rule of law? for your opinion to rule for five minutes, because that's what's going to happen. Once we throw away precedent, laws are going to change every two years, every four years, anytime there's a new there's a new uh, Supreme Court justice. And so what looks good in the short term looks terrible in the long term. 
affirmative action isn't just about affirmative action. It's about the entire legal system and how we preserve America as a stable and free society. Without stare decisis, without the power of precedent, every day is a new day and no one can predict anything. And these decisions matter very, very much. That's philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein for Philosophical Currents. Jack, thanks so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure to do Philosophical Currents, and I love talking with you, Ashley. I'm looking forward to it for next month.